If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading the final chapters of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story as much as I've enjoyed reading it. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 36 In which Phileas Fogg's name is once more at a premium on change. It is time to relate what a change took place in English public opinion when it transpired that the real bank robber, a certain James Strand, had been arrested on the 17th day of December at Edinburgh. Three days before, Phileas Fogg had been a criminal who was being desperately followed up by the police. Now he was an honourable gentleman, mathematically pursuing his eccentric journey round the world. The papers resumed their discussion about the wager. All those who had laid bets, for and against him, revived their interest, as if by magic the Phileas Fogg bonds again became negotiable and many new wages were made. Phileas Fogg's name was once more at a premium on change. His five friends of the Reform Club passed these three days in a state of feverish suspense. Would Phileas Fogg, whom they had forgotten, reappear before their eyes? Where was he at this moment? The 17th of September, the day of James Strand's arrest, was the 76th since Phileas Fogg's departure, and no news had been received. Was he dead? Had he abandoned the effort? Or was he continuing his journey along the route agreed upon? And would he appear on Saturday? the 21st of December, at quarter before nine in the evening, on the threshold of the Reform Club saloon. The anxiety in which, for three days, 
London society existed cannot be described. Telegrams were sent to America and Asia for news of Phileas Fogg. Messengers were dispatched to the house in Savile Row morning and evening. No news. The police were ignorant what had happened of the detective, Fix, who had so unfortunately followed up a false scent. Bets increased, nevertheless, in number and value. Phileas Fogg, like a racehorse, was drawing near his turning point. The bonds were quoted, no longer at a hundred below par, but at twenty, and ten, and at five, and paralytic old Lord Abermile bet even his favour. And paralytic old Lord Abermile bet even his favour. A great crowd was collected in Pall Mall and the neighbouring streets on Saturday evening. It seemed like a multitude of brokers permanently established around the Reform Club. Circulation was impeded, and everywhere disputes, discussions, and financial transactions were going on. The police had great difficulty in keeping the crowd back, and as the hour went, Phileas Fogg was due approached. The excitement rose in its highest pitch. The five antagonists of Phileas Fogg had met in the great saloon of the club. John Sullivan and Samuel Fulton, the bankers, Andrew Stewart, the engineer, Gawther Ralph, the director of the Bank of England, and Thomas Flanagan, the brewer, one and all awaited anxiously. When the clock indicated twenty minutes past eight, Andrew Stewart got up, saying, Gentlemen, in twenty minutes the time agreed upon between Mr. Fogg and ourselves will have expired. What time did the last train arrive from Liverpool? asked Thomas Flanagan. At twenty-three minutes past seven, replied Gawther Ralph, and the next does not arrive till ten minutes after twelve. Well, gentlemen, resumed Andrew Stewart, if Phileas Fogg had come in the 7.23 train, he would have got here by this time. We can, therefore, regard the bet as one. Wait, don't let us be too hasty, replied Samuel Fulton. You know that Mr. Fogg is very eccentric. His punctuality is well known. He never arrives too soon, or too late, and I should not be surprised if he appeared before us at the last minute. Why, said Andrew Stewart nervously, if I should see him, I should not believe it was he. The fact is, resumed Thomas Flanagan, 
Mr. Fogg's project was absurdly foolish. Whatever his punctuality, he could not prevent the delays which were certain to occur. And a delay of only two or three days would be fatal to his tour. Observe too, added John Sullivan, that we have received no intelligence from him, though there are telegraphic lines all along his route. He has lost, gentlemen, said Andrew Stewart. He has a hundred times lost. You know, besides, that the China, the only steamer he could have taken from New York to get here in time, arrived yesterday. I have seen a list of the passengers, and the name of Phileas Fogg is not among them. Even if we admit that fortune has favoured him, he can scarcely have reached America. I think he will be at least twenty days behind hand, and that Lord Abermile will lose a cool five thousand. It is clear, replied Gortho Ralph, and we have nothing to do but to present Mr. Fogg's cheque at Barings tomorrow. At this moment, the hands of the club clock pointed to twenty minutes to nine. Five minutes more, said Andrew Stewart. The five gentlemen looked at each other. Their anxiety was becoming intense, but, not wishing to betray it, they readily assented to Mr. Fulton's proposal of a rubber. I wouldn't give up my four thousand of the bet, said Andrew Stewart, as he took his seat, for three thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine. The clock indicated eighteen minutes to nine. The players took up their cards, but could not keep their eyes off the clock. Certainly, however secure they felt, minutes had never seemed so long to them. Seventeen minutes to nine, said Thomas Flanagan as he cut the cards which Ralph had handed to him. Then there was a moment of silence. The great saloon was perfectly quiet, but the murmurs of the crowd outside were heard, with now and then a shrill cry. The pendulum beat the seconds, which each player eagerly counted, as he listened with mathematical regularity. Sixteen minutes to nine, said John Sullivan, in a voice which betrayed his emotion. One minute more, and the wager would be won. Andrew Stewart and his partners suspended their game. They left their cards and counted the seconds. At the fortieth second, nothing. At the fiftieth, still nothing. At the fifty-fifth, 
A loud cry was heard in the street, followed by applause, hurrahs, and some fierce growls. The players rose from their seats. At the fifty-seventh second, the door of the saloon opened, and the pendulum had not beat the sixteenth second when Phileas Fogg appeared, followed by an excited crowd who had forced their way through the club doors, and in his calm voice said, Here I am, gentlemen. Chapter 37 In which it is shown that Phileas Fogg gained nothing by his tour around the world, unless it were happiness. Yes, Phileas Fogg in person. The reader will remember that at five minutes past eight in the evening, about five and twenty hours after the arrival of the travellers in London, Passepartout had been sent by his master to engage in the services of Reverend Samuel Wilson in a certain marriage ceremony which was to take place next day. Passepartout went on his errand enchanted. He soon reached the clergyman's house, but found him not at home. Passepartout waited a good twenty minutes, and when he left the reverend gentleman, it was thirty-five minutes past eight. But in what a state he was, with his hair disordered and without his hat, he ran along the street as never man was seen to run before, overturning passers-by, rushing over the sidewalk like a water-spout. In three minutes he was in Savile Row again, and staggered back into Mr. Fogg's room. He could not speak. What is the matter? asked Mr. Fogg. My master, gasped Passepartout. Marriage, impossible. Impossible. Impossible for tomorrow. Why so? Because tomorrow is Sunday. Monday, replied Mr. Fogg. No, today is Saturday. Saturday? Impossible. Yes, 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 cried Passepartout. You have made a mistake of one day. We arrived twenty-four hours ahead of time, but there are only ten minutes left. Passepartout had seized his master by the collar and was dragging him along with irresistible force. Phileas Fogg, thus kidnapped, without having time to think, left his house, jumped into a cab, promised a hundred pounds to the cabsman, and having run over two dogs and overturned five carriages, reached the Reform Club. 
The clock indicated a quarter before nine when he appeared in the great saloon. Phileas Fogg had accomplished the journey round the world in eighty days. Phileas Fogg had won his wager of twenty thousand pounds. How was it that a man so exact and fastidious could have managed this error of a day? How came he to think that he had arrived in London on Saturday, the twenty-first day of September, when it was really Friday, the twentieth, and the seventy-ninth day only from his departure? The cause of the error is very simple. Phileas Fogg had, without suspecting it, gained one day on his journey, and this merely because he had travelled constantly eastward. He would, on the contrary, have lost a day had he gone the opposite direction, that is, westward. In journeying eastward, he had gone towards the sun, and the days therefore diminished for him as many times four minutes as he crossed degrees in this direction. There are three hundred and sixty degrees on the circumference of the earth, and these three hundred and sixty degrees, multiplied by four minutes, gives precisely twenty-four hours, that is, the day unconsciously gained. In other words, while Phileas Fogg, going eastwards, saw the sun pass the meridian eighty times, his friends in London only saw it pass the meridian seventy-nine times. This is why they awaited him at the Reform Club on Saturday and not Sunday, as Mr. Fogg thought. And Passepartout's famous family watch, which had always kept London time, would have betrayed this fact, if it had marked the days as well as the hours and the minutes. Phileas Fogg, then, had won the twenty thousand pounds, but... As he had spent nearly nineteen thousand on the way, the pecuniary gain was small. His object was, however, to be victorious and not to win money. He divided the one thousand pounds that remained between Passepartout and the unfortunate Fix, against whom he cherished no grudge. He deducted, however, from Passepartout's share the cost of the gas which had burned in his room for nineteen hundred and twenty hours for the sake of regularity. That evening, Mr. Fogg, as tranquil and phlegmatic as ever, said to Uda, Is our marriage still agreeable to you? Mr. Fogg, replied she, it is for me to ask that question. You were ruined, but now you are rich again. 
Pardon me, madame. My fortune belongs to you. If you had not suggested our marriage, my servant would not have gone to the Reverend Samuel Wilson's. I should not have been apprised of my error, and... Dear Mr. Fogg, said the young woman. Dear Uda, replied Phileas Fogg. It need not be said that the marriage took place forty-eight hours after, and that Passepartout, glowing and dazzling, gave the bride away. Had he not saved her, and was he not entitled to this honour? The next day, as soon as it was light, Passepartout rapped vigorously at his master's door. Mr. Fogg opened it and asked, What's the matter, Passepartout? What is it, sir? Why, I've just this instant found out. What? That we might have made the tour of the world in only seventy-eight days. No doubt, returned Mr. Fogg, by not crossing India. But if I had not crossed India, I should not have saved Uda. She would not have been my wife, and... Mr. Fogg quietly shut the door. Phileas Fogg had won his wager, and he had made his journey around the world in eighty days. To do this, he had employed every means of conveyance, Steamers, railways, carriages, yachts, trading vessels, sledges, elephants. The eccentric gentleman had throughout displayed all his marvellous qualities of coolness and exactitude. But what then? What had he really gained by all this trouble? What had he brought back from this long and weary journey? Nothing, say you? Perhaps so. Nothing but a charming woman, who, strange as it may appear, made him the happiest of men. Truly, would you not for less than that make the tour around the world? The End Jules Verne was born in 1868. He studied law at Paris, but turned to writing almost immediately after completing his education, and brought out his first comedy in 1850. This was followed by several comic operas. However, he is chiefly known by his scientific romances, of which the first, Five Weeks in a Balloon, appeared in 1863. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea is perhaps the best example of Fern's tales of the marvels of inventions, and we have to remember that when it was written, in 1873, nobody had yet succeeded in making a boat that travelled underwater. 
For that reason, it was, in a way, a prophetic book, shadowing forth the wonderful possibilities of human ingenuity in exploring the ocean's unknown depths. Jules Verne died March 24th, 1905. If you've still not quite managed to drift off to sleep, here's the first chapter of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, also written by Jules Verne. Chapter 1. I Join a Strange Expedition In the year 1866, the whole seafaring world of Europe and America was greatly disturbed by an ocean mystery which baffled the wits of scientists and sailors alike. Several vessels, in widely different regions of the seas, had met a long and rapidly moving object, much larger than a whale, and capable of almost incredible speed. It had also been seen at night, and was then phosphorescent, moving under the water in a glow of light. There was no doubt whatever as to the reality of this unknown terror of the deep, for several vessels had been struck by it, and particularly the cunard steamer Scotia, homeward bound for Liverpool. It had pierced a large triangular hole through the steel plates of the Scotia's hull, and would certainly have sunk the vessel had it not been divided into seven watertight compartments, any one of which could stand injury without danger to the vessel. It was three hundred miles off Cape Clear that the Scotia encountered this mysterious monster. Arriving after some days' delay at Liverpool, the vessel was put into dock when the result of the blow from the unknown was thoroughly investigated. So many vessels having recently been lost from unknown causes, the narrow escape of the Scotia directly fresh attention to this ocean mystery, and both in Europe and America there was a strong public agitation for an expedition to be sent out, prepared to do battle with, and if possible destroy, this narwhal of monstrous growth, as many scientists believed it to be. Now I, Pierre Aranax, assistant professor in the Paris Museum of Natural History, was at this time in America, where I had been engaged on a scientific expedition into the disagreeable region of Nebraska. I had arrived at New York in company of my faithful attendant, Conseil and was devoting my attention to classifying the numerous specimens I had gathered for the Paris Museum. As I had already some reputation in the scientific world from my book on 
the mysteries of the great submarine grounds, a number of people did me the honour of consulting me concerning the one subject, then exercising the minds of all interested in ocean travel. An expedition was also being fitted out by the United States government, the fastest frigate of the Navy, the Abraham Lincoln. Under the command of Captain Farragut, being in active preparation, with the object of hunting out this wandering monster, which had last been seen three weeks before by a San Francisco steamer, in the North Pacific Ocean. I was invited to join this expedition as a representative of France and immediately decided to do so. The faithful Conseil said he would go with me whenever I went and thus it came about that my sturdy Flemish companion who had accompanied me on scientific expeditions for ten years, was with me again on the eventful cruise, which began when we sailed from Brooklyn for the Pacific and the Unknown. The crew of the frigate and the various scientists on board were all eagerness to meet the great Centurion or Sea Unicorn. My own opinion was that it would be found to be a narwhal of monstrous growth, for these creatures are armed with a kind of ivory sword or tusk, as hard as steel, and sometimes nearly seven feet long by fifteen inches in diameter. Supposing one to exist ten times as large as any that had ever been captured, with its tusk proportionately powerful, it was conceivable that such a gigantic creature, moving at a great rate, could do all the damage that had been reported. There was among our crew one Ned Land, a gigantic Canadian of forty who was considered to be the prince of harpooners. Many a whale had received its death blow from him, and he was eager to flesh his harpoon in this redoubtable sentition which had terrified the marine world. Week after week passed without any sign that our quest would be successful. Indeed, After nearly four months had gone, and we had explored the whole of the Japanese and Chinese coasts, the captain reached the point of deciding to return, when one night the voice of Ned Land was heard calling. Look out there, the thing we are looking for on our weather beam. At this cry, the entire crew rushed towards the harpooner. Captain, officers, masters, sailors, and cabin boys. Even the engineers left their engines, and the stokers their furnaces. The frigate was now moving only by her own momentum, 
for the engines had been stopped. My heart beat violently. I was sure the harpooner's eyes had not deceived him. Soon we could all see, about two cables length away, a strange and luminous object lying some fathoms below the surface, just as described in many of the reports. One of the officers suggested that it was merely an enormous mass of phosphorus particles, but I replied with conviction that the light was electric, and even as I spoke, the strange thing began to move towards us. The captain immediately reversed engines and put on full speed but the luminous monster gained on us and played round the frigate with frightful rapidity. Its light would go out suddenly and reappear again on the other side of the vessel. It was clearly too great a risk to attack the thing in the dark, and by midnight it disappeared, dying out like a huge glowworm. It appeared again, about five miles to the windward, at two in the morning, coming up to the surface as if to breathe, and it seemed as though the air rushed into its huge lungs, like steam in the vast cylinders of a two-thousand-horsepower engine. Hum, said I. A whale with the strength of a cavalry regiment would be a pretty whale. 